I thought that, you know, being solo in the wilderness with the horses um, was going to somehow heal me. I, I wasn't sure what was going to heal me, but I knew that somehow that this was going to heal me. Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring and influential guests who are making their mark on the world and contributing to the common good. Making your mark, big or small, is creating a legacy. It's one of the ways we can age with energy and joy. Zestful Aging Podcast is my legacy. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. And our music is courtesy of Judy Banker. Find out more at judybanker.com. And to find out more about my podcast, my web courses, and my brand new book, Not Just Chatting, How to Become a Master Podcast Interviewer, hop on over to zestfulaging.com. And when you're there, sign up for my email newsletter, The Insider, where you will get behind-the-scenes looks at my interviews and other fun tidbits. Well, I've got my little Jack Russell Sparky right by my side, so let's begin. We have a fascinating interview with you today. I'm really excited to talk to our guest. Like many women, Kathy Burns decided to leave an abusive marriage in midlife, but she was unprepared to live on the reduced income that was available to her at the time, and she found that the job job market didn't welcome her in her late 50s. An avid horsewoman, she decided to borrow money from her dad to purchase a truck and horse trailer and ride in each of the lower 48 states until she found a new place to call home and find a calm within herself again. She named the journey Schlepp, soul-searching, home-seeking, liberating equestrian party. And on her 13th month adventure, most of it solo, she confronts challenges and her emotional demons. And here to tell you more about this amazing story is Kathy Burns. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to to speak with you. We were just talking a minute uh, before we went live on this phenomenon of gray divorce and that there is a real uptick in divorces um, with uh, for women of um, uh, midlife, post-midlife. And I'm wondering, when did you know that it was time to leave your abusive marriage? Was it there an aha moment or was it sort of a slow, a slow um, drip of, of uh, dissatisfaction? It was a slow drip. Um, my therapist had told me this little analogy about if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, it will jump out and save itself. But if you put a pot, a frog in a pot of cold water and put it on the stove and it gradually warms up to boiling, the frog will boil to death. And that's basically what happens with most women uh, in emotionally abusive marriages, which was 
the case with mine. Mine really started to decline when I retired from my career. I'd been a high-powered salesperson in New York City, and um, when my youngest was two, I, I left that career to be a stay-at-home mom because I just didn't feel like I was doing either job as well as I wanted to. And mm-hmm. that basically changed the dynamics of our relationship. It wasn't, it, honestly, it was bad before that. But it became really bad after that. Um, I was no longer a cash cow, so to speak. And it just got worse and worse. And uh, even though I, I'd been told by a therapist that if I stayed with him, he would end up killing me, I stayed another 12 years. So it's really hard to, if people that work with abused women say that it's um, extremely difficult to talk someone into leaving. It's just, it's so frustrating to, to know someone that's in a relationship like this. So many people told me to leave. But um, in a, there's a book called The Four Agreements that while I was in, I think it was in Ohio, the campground uh, owner gave me this book to read. It's called The Four Agreements and it's a uh, very popular book. And there's a line in there that caught my attention and that's, um, once the abuse exceeds what we think we deserve, then we leave. And at the time when I read that, I was like, no way. I thought like, you know, I was, you know, this really strong woman and how could that have been? But in hindsight, you know what, I'm out of this now, like nine years. And um, it absolutely is true. Uh, But if you tell that to someone that's in this situation, it's really harsh for them to hear that. But it's not like what you think you are to like on a worldly matter, like, you know, your earning power or how beautiful you are or what you think what your past glorifications were. It's a, an, it's a deep rooted self-esteem problem uh, that, so you accept it. Yeah, that's really consistent with uh, what I know as a psychotherapist. I mean, you could sort of be the most beautiful family and sort of have all the material stuff and even have, you know, I just, everything looks great, but um, there can be certainly uh, a profound emotional abuse going on. Right. And these, these, the, the partners that are doing the abuse are usually, at least in my case, extremely charming to other people. I mean, he was charming to me in the beginning, too. Um, and so it's, it's, um, you end up thinking that I ended up thinking that I was crazy, that there was something really wrong with me that, you know, um, because it, it just, it confuses your mind to have, have it be like on a public level. Yeah. This family's got it all together. Look at their kids. They're great. Big house, fancy lifestyle, handsome couple. Um, but once no one was around, it was very different, <laughs> very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and so do you want to share the moment you realized that it was time to go, even though financially um, things were not secure for you at that moment um, and that 
you realize that the rents in Southern California were unaffordable for you at that time. So you knew that there were a lot of challenges, but yet you decided to leave in a way that um, I think would have terrified most people. Yeah, well, I decided to leave um, the summer before my youngest entered her senior year of high school. I was honestly trying to hold out until she graduated high school, uh, mm -hmm. even though I had dissed my mother for doing the same thing. <laughs> you know, as the kid, mm. kids don't want to live in a, in a, in a war zone. So, um, but I just couldn't, met, at that point that summer, uh, something clicked. I was uh, thinking about jumping off the balcony uh, frequently, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I decided it, it was, I was in therapy and I had a fabulous therapist who gave me great, some great coping mechanisms to get through panic attacks and to get through the, the, the repeated huge arguments and my lack of being able to recover. And at, at that point I was very jumpy and nervous and, and confused thinking. But I, I thought that if I'd stayed any longer, I was going to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't want to do that to my children. I see. So you really, your back was up against the wall. It wasn't really a, much of a choice. Right. And at that point, I hadn't dreamt up this crazy, crazy journey idea. Um, that happened uh, right after I filed for divorce. I went all, away for a weekend with a girlfriend. It was like the first time I'd done anything like that in our entire marriage, honestly. And um, while we were, we took the horses up to Malibu and we were riding and staying at, at her friend's house. And while we were up there, I came up with this, uh, I, got a, I got an email from my lawyer, my attorney, my divorce attorney that was the, just, it was like an example of what I was now going to be facing until this divorce got settled. And it was just all this conflict and questions and just crazy, crazy assumptions that my husband was trying to pull. And I just in a moment of desperation said to my friend, I just want to like get on my horse and go ride around all around the country till I can find a place to live. And she got all excited. She's like, wow, I always wanted to do something like that. Um, and initially she was going to go with me. And that's how it was dreamt up. And then when I got back to Pasadena and saw my therapist, I told her about this crazy idea. And she said, I think you should do it. It would be therapeutic, which was not the answer that I was expecting. Uh, but <laughs> I, I can imagine. <laughs> this is some therapist you yes, had. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, I've been in therapy most of my adult life. I'd never had a therapist tell me what to do before. You know, they usually make you come to your own assumptions. But um, in hindsight, I still see this therapist, and to this day, she mm -hmm. says it was the best advice that she's ever given anybody. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And she must have recognized your deep, deep love and bond for these animals. Yes, yes, she did. In fact, um, at one point, I told her that I couldn't afford to see her anymore, and she said, I'm not going to let um, him get in the way of your happiness. I'll defer your, your payments until the divorce is settled, which was four years later. So mm -hmm. she was, she's a remarkable woman. Her, mm -hmm. Dr. Lydia Glass in Pasadena, shout out to her. She's like a really... Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
an awesome therapist. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to announce that my book is finally available for purchase on Amazon and my website, ZestfulAging.com. It's called Not Just Chatting, How to Become a Master Podcast Interviewer. And it's written for people interested in starting a podcast or for those already podcasting who want to stand out from the two million podcasts that are already out there. So please pass this along to anyone you know who could benefit from my 30 years experience as a psychotherapist and over 250 podcast interviews. Thanks so much. So you initially kind of made these plans on a uh, on a girls weekend and then realized that that was really uh, your destiny. Yeah. Um, up until the very last minute, my friend Carolyn was going to go with me. Uh, but Carolyn had MS and decided after um, a pretty disastrous test trip that I took with the with the new rig uh, that it, it wasn't in her best interests to uh, do the trip. And honestly, it was better that she wasn't around because I did a lot of crying in that trailer. And um, I had, you know, along the way, my mother died. Uh, there was a lot of uh, personal stuff that I needed to go through on my own. And it would have been pr probably pretty awful for her. She probably would have quit halfway through it and gotten on a plane. Mm, but, um, I see. Yeah, so I, I, the plan was not to go solo, but at the point that she pulled out, I already had the rig. I'd already given notice at my apartment. I was all set to go. So I did. And, and your, was it your daughter who was still at home in high school? She had graduated. By, by the time I actually pulled out of California, uh, she was in college. So it was, mm -hmm. she had just left for college the week before, in fact. So I, I really felt that all three of my kids at that point were in college. Um, I thought they were old enough to uh, deal with things. I was paying for their tuition and room and board, and I, and I thought that was like pretty generous of me and that I really needed to fix myself. My, um, I, I couldn't help them in the psychological state that I was in. I, I was no, of no use to them. I was... I wasn't, wasn't the kind of person at that point that could, could give advice. I couldn't advise myself. So, and they, you know, college years are unique. And I always thought of college as a time when kids go off and they can practice out being independent, even though someone's paying for everything, and, and grow up and, and see what they really want to do with their lives. So... Um, I, I felt what was their reaction when you... Oh, they were all mad at me. They said I abandoned them. <laughs> ah, yeah. I see. Yeah, no, it was... Uh, they weren't happy about it. I see. Do you remember when you pulled out of your neighborhood with your trailer and your horses and your trailer, knowing that you were going on this massive adventure and... Oh, um, I, yeah, I remember it very clearly. <laughs> yeah, I actually left from the uh, riding club in, in La Cañada where I lived. Um, and they had had a 
big send off party for me. And um, so I pulled out of there because I'd actually moved out of the house, the family home. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband refused to move out, and uh, I couldn't. Uh, there's no way that I could have cohabitated in the same house, even though it was a big house uh, with him. Uh, so I had moved out already, but I remember it very clearly. It was um, it was actually the first day that I'd woken up in years and hadn't greeted the morning with "shit, I'm still alive." So, uh-huh. yeah. So it was. I was excited about it. I I had I really had it in my head that this was going to be a therapy uh, a psychotherapy shortcut and. Because I, I knew how reduced my functioning was, and I couldn't stand it. I didn't. I wanted to be the old me again, um, and I didn't know how to do that. And I thought that you know, being solo in the wilderness with the horses um, was going to somehow heal me. Um, I, I wasn't sure what was going to heal me, but I knew that somehow that this was going to heal me. Mm-hmm. And. And so, how did it go initially? Um, once I got on the road, uh, I had done a test trip, thank God. I did a test trip because I had a, a disastrous test trip. And uh, I actually did a whole bunch of damage to the trailer and took some professional truck driving lessons in the time that the trailer was getting fixed. So, by the time I left, I felt pretty confident about my driving skills. And I headed up north. I, my first campsite was probably not the wisest choice. It was a primitive campsite, so it meant that I had no electric or water or septic hookup for the trailer. And I didn't really understand how my trailer worked at all. And the campsite only had one corral per campsite, and my horses didn't do well with each other. One was a bully and one was submissive. And the last night, uh, the last morning I woke up and one of the horses had taken advantage of the other one. She was all cut up and bruised. And so my first, right off the bat, it was, it was rough. Um, but things got better. I learned along the way, like, you know, that I had to make sure that I had two corrals (laughs) or that I could set up my own, um, horse accommodations and uh, I didn't stay at very many primitive sometimes I had to because there was nothing else available but I if I had a choice I would choose a place that had some hookup that I at least so I could have electric or something you know water because it's just a whole lot more convenient yeah yeah so how does one find these horse accommodations? I have never seen any indication <laughs> of this when I'm looking for any, uh, well, I don't do a lot of camping, but I guess is this its own separate thing where there's places that um, offer horse accommodation? Yeah, um, I had, was not really aware of it even when I left, uh, how many there were. I had been looking on national forest, uh, the national forest websites, uh, and they have horse campgrounds at some of in some of those forests. Uh, and so that's how I started. Uh, my first pl- uh, stop was at a, it. It was a national forest, or usually the national or state in Utah. 
And they're, you know, usually very beautiful places. I mean, the ones that I was at, they're in the forest. But as I traveled, I found out that there's more than that. There's um, on the edges of the national forests where, where you're going to find the biggest trail systems. There are people have land and they've built private campgrounds. Um, and when I was in Kansas at an overnight, um, the woman there was heading her she'd lost her husband that year so she was a new widow and she was heading off to one such private campground like this in missouri and begged me to go along with her so i did and when we pulled in there there was this huge this is the middle of nowhere by the way like i mean really like the middle of nowhere <laughs> and there was at least a hundred rigs parked in this field horse oh, wow. just as big as mine and i was like wow i mean it was like a really eye-opening to me because up until that point i i pretty much felt like what a loner i was you know that i was doing this weird thing but it turns out there's a lot of people that do this there's even people that do this full time They've so they you found your people i did i did eventually find my people do you remember any particular experiences that you were aware of your healing happening that you said to yourself, wow, this is what I was hoping for and I'm feeling um, different? Yes, um, except that, you know, when you get to that point, usually you've gone through something painful <laughs> before that happens. At least that's been my experience. For instance, when I was in Missouri with this woman that, from Kansas, um, I was feeling extremely depressed when everyone else was packing up to leave after, the, it, after that week experience was over because I didn't even know what state I was going to next. That's how disorganized I was. And I felt like everyone's going back to their homes, their jobs, and their families and all the things that I didn't have anymore. And I got very depressed. And this small group of women that I had sort of buddied up with uh, while we were there saw me, and I'd been crying. And one of them approached me and said, can we pray for you? And nobody in my life had ever asked me that question before. And... Mm -hmm. I was not, I didn't think it would work. <laughs> I thought like it was like some magic thing that people thought would work. But I'll tell you, that experience of holding hands with these other women who, all, who had all had some traumas in their life too. They were all single women there in this, this particular small group. Holding hands with them and, and then praying to, for like, They'd gotten to know me, and so they knew, like, and remembered. They spoke to every fear and insecurity that I had expressed during that, that time there. And so it not only made me feel like, oh, they were listening to me, and it was just, an, I cried through the entire prayer anyway. Uh -huh. I couldn't say anything. Uh -huh. I cried through the entire prayer. But it, it started me thinking about, okay, so where along in my life, because I was raised Catholic, what, what happened in my life that I walked away from God? And I realized 
over time that it wasn't just my marriage. It was the reason that I that I found my marriage so intolerable was because he was pushing all the buttons that my mother had installed. You know what I mean? He just hit on all of my insecurities. He, you know, he found I'm a pretty much an open book, and he discovered all my my um, buttons, all my insecurities, and he and he'd push on them. Mm-hmm. And so it it was like a so like for the next several states, it was like this really deep for me like remembering what happened when I was a teenager. What happened? You know, I I was grew up in the '60s, and I was doing a lot of drugs. We moved constantly. My mother was very controlling. My mother was also very depressed. And I got pregnant twice as a teenager. And this was before abortion was even legal. And uh, she, I was only 16. She took me for an abortion. I had no say in it. Actually, this happened twice. And so I had to like think about all that and, and come to grips with... Um, taking some of the blame off my husband. Yeah, it's not nice to pick on people when you know they're, what's going to bother them, but... There had been wounds. There, there were wounds there, there already, yes. Mm-hmm. Even though I was like this successful, glamorous person in New York City, you know, in the 80s, I, I was just putting up a really good front. It, it was always there. I see. So you did a life review. Yes, it was a real, it was a real life review. So, um, but while I was in Florida, a few months later, I got to Florida. At that point, um, my father, who was my biggest supporter emotionally and financially, he lent me the money for my rig. He had stage four cancer and I went to spend Christmas with him and uh, spend some time with him as he started chemo. And I knew that he was going to die, but I was in denial about it because he was, he'd always been my rock. And while I was there, I was there for several months, I started going to a church there. And I was uh, baptized that, uh, while I was there. And not that anything magical happens when you get baptized, but it was to me, it was a declaration that, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done trying to muscle through life on my own steam. I need some help here. Mm-hmm. And then I, I um, got to New Jersey and I was very conflicted about um, dealing with my mother there. My mother was uh, suddenly diagnosed with multiple myeloma and while I was there, she died. And I didn't really understand why I felt so, and I felt like a bad person. I wasn't really grieving her death. I just, I um, still had so much unresolved conflict with her. But I then carried her ashes with me for quite a few more states. And when I got to Wisconsin, where she was from, I, I buried her ashes. And at that moment, something really um, lifted from me. Um, I thought about how my mother had had me as a teenager, and she'd told me that she'd been, you know, filled with shame because this was back in the fifties. And what a way to start! Yeah, 
and that she had done the best she could. And that's really all that we can ask of someone is that they do the best they can. Uh, it's the same that I would ask of my children, right? So um, I would say that everything changed at that point in that cemetery in Wisconsin. But it was a long process. Mm-hmm. So what what's the experience like of, you know, sort of your day-to-day? You went to a campground and then... You spend the day riding. Is that how it how it works? Yeah. Um, my I started out saying I was going to spend a week in each state, and that that would be about a year. Um, and uh, I would ride. Usually, my first day I would pony one of the horses. I'd ride one and pony the other one, so they'd get used to being in a new environment. Because horses are pretty fearful creatures. And then. Uh, they're like, you know, when you're camping, it's like everything is like more difficult to do, like just cooking a meal and getting water and feeding the horses. And on, on top of my goals of riding and camping in every state, my other goal was to do a painting in each state. So I would um, spend time in the afternoons painting. I usually rode in the morning. Um, sometimes then other days I would ride both horses. Uh, I'd ride one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Most of the time I was riding alone. Sometimes if I was in a place where there were other campers and they saw that I was alone, uh, they would ask if I wanted to ride with them. They'd ask if I want to eat dinner with them. Um, the, the horse camping people are extremely friendly. Um, mm-hmm. And so when there was other people around, it was wonderful. Um, and when I was alone is when I would tend to get depressed, but it, I needed that time alone to be introspective. I had a lot of things to work out. I did a lot of journaling, a lot of journaling. Mm-hmm. I, I had a blog going while it was going on. Um, and then I ended up a year later turning the whole thing into a book, which was very introspective and uh, difficult, but uh, therapeutic at the same time. And I hope that it inspires other women to uh, evaluate, reevaluate, like, is this relationship, you know, damaging me? And is, this, is it stopping me from living my best life um, and being the person that I want to be? And especially as you get older, it's like, this is your last chapter now. What are you going to do with it? And you have indeed inspired many, many women. Tell me what that's been like to get um, feedback from women that you've really um, inspired them and helped them through their own uh, it's, journeys. It's, uh, it's so fulfilling and rewarding, I can't tell you. It's the, it, it's, there's other things in my life that I love to do. I love to paint still. I love to ride. But there's something that I get back when people people message me all the time or they send me emails after they've read the book or on Facebook. I post things trying to inspire women. Um, a lot of people are, are still in, you know, in, the, in these bad relationships and, and just feel trapped. And I can so relate to that feeling of feeling trapped. And I, I enjoyed like trying to give them tips of like, you know, how to get through it and 
what you can do while you're still in it. Like there's, you can go to therapy, you can go for a walk. You don't have to go on some crazy horse camping journey across the country. You can go for a walk in the woods. You can uh, spend time alone in a peaceful place. You can listen to positive music. You can turn the crazy news off. I think the news right now is like really damaging people's mental health. Mm-hmm. And um, you're not going to be able to solve the world's problems anyway. So why are you even listening to it? I feel really strongly about that. And um, I find it incredibly rewarding. I think that this is what, um, I think this is God's plan for me. I think that when you have gone through something, if you don't turn around and and grab the woman's hand that's walking in the shoes that you just left and and help them along, um, I think that's what God wants us to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel very strongly about that. And so... Yeah, it's very fulfilling, very fulfilling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Has your relationship with your horses or had it changed um, as you were traveling and and doing all of this uh, inside uh, emotional work? Yes, it sure did. Um, It's kind of funny, like in hindsight, to talk about it because at the time I was so blind to it, but Okay, so I had one horse, Dreamy. She was like the perfect, calm horse. But she was the victim in the relationship between these two horses. And she was my first horse, and she was very special to me. The other horse was like a problem horse. And um, <laughs> she was like, um, a, she was a bully, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, and so when she was pushing Dreamy around or doing anything, that you know, like controlling dreamy where what hay she was allowed to eat like you can't get out of this water bucket here and she's very pushy and she did the same thing to me and it bugged the crap it bugged me so much (laughs) and i didn't see the metaphor of my own marriage (laughs) in it until later like after the journey a friend of mine that's a horse trainer she said kathy She's not your husband. She's just she's just a horse. <laughs> Give her a chance. <laughs> and actually, now she is. I, I'm incredibly bonded with that horse, and she's a fabulous horse. <laughs> but I had to get over my problems with her. So. Mm, I see. So you changed your relationship and perspective to her and her behaviors. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. That, that is uh, a, a real metaphor. Oh, my goodness. Um, tell me uh, and tell the audience, Kathy, how they can learn more about this incredible adventure that you went on and, and just more about you and your blog and, and your inspiring work. Okay. Um, during the journey, I had a blog, and you can find that at uh, schlep.blog and schlep is spelled without the C it's not the Yiddish version it's <laughs> S-H-L-E-P dot blog mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. most of the posts on there are going to be from the journey itself but I do occasionally post other stuff I post all my artwork on there as well all my recent artwork and I also have posted some um a recording of chapter one from the book on there. If anybody wants to just give a listen to chapter one. Uh, What is the book called? The book is called Schlepp, Finding Healing on Horseback in the Lower 48. And Mm -hmm. it's on Amazon. I self-published it. 
And mm-hmm. it's, um, that's about it to tell you about the book. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's doing really well. And um, it, it's inspiring women to follow their dreams. And uh, I find that part very gratifying. I'm about to set, get in the studio and do the audible version. Yeah, uh, next you week. mentioned that. Yeah. Oh, lovely, lovely. And um, what about now, Kathy? What is your life looking like? Well, you know, um, I'd like to tell you that it's like perfect happy ending. <laughs> but, you know, life, <laughs> life marches on, you know. Um, I, I've had uh, storms since then, for sure. Uh, Dreamy, my, my main horse, uh, died two years ago. And that was just um. devastating to me, just Mm, it must Just have been crushing. Um, and then my oldest son uh, last year had a psychotic break, um, and I was afraid of him. He was he was very um, he was it was bad. Uh, but I think that uh, what I experienced, what I went through, trying to fix myself and my faith uh, in God, has. Uh, given me strength and insights that I wouldn't have had prior to that if this hadn't happened. And it all came to a head when he came back from overseas, um, when, right when COVID hit. So uh, my calendar was wiped clean. I had nothing to do, mm-hmm. like, you know. Mm-hmm. And he moved in with me. And although in the beginning he re- refused treatment, so nothing was the matter with him, uh, but he clearly was something was very the matter with him he looked like a homeless person and he was ranting all the time Uh, he is now um he's been treatment compliant since october he's uh become involved with my church here he's in it uh, school they call boot camp It's, it's not like military it's Learning, yeah, um, learning software, mm-hmm. um, and he's he's a mir- he's a walking talking miracle. Uh, I'm now very involved with NAMI, which is mm-hmm. a National Alliance for Mental Illness, and mm-hmm. everybody that I've talked to uh, that's gone through what I've gone through with this, they they helped. The support groups were incredible while this was going on for me. Um, but this usually takes 10 years to get someone treatment compliant with our HIPAA laws and our broken mental health system. And I really truly believe that this is a miracle. He has a, an, a fabulous psychiatrist um, that he started seeing on Zoom. Thank God for Zoom. God bless Zoom. Um, yes. Zoom got us through COVID. And he too says that uh, when Billy first presented, he, he you know feared that this was uh, schizophrenia, which runs in my family. Um, oh, but boy. that um, he has no way of explaining uh, the rapid progress that he's made, and he now just diagnosed him. His diagnosis is depression, so it, which is yeah, depression is still a big deal, but. Um, it is not nearly as bad as schizophrenia. So uh, he, he said, that, uh, I said, I, th- I think it's a miracle. And he said, I do too. So I think that there is like, it's interesting when you get older and you look back over your life. I used to just like think like one random thing happened to me after another. 
and there no, nothing made sense. But now I look at look back over my life, and I think that everything is for a reason. I think that there was like a miraculous, incredibly intricate plan here. So, yeah. So life life continues, and, and that's not to say nothing else bad's going to not ever happen. Um, it's just that <laughs> it's just that I'm going to get feel through. Feel like you have you're more equipped. I'm definitely more equipped. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow, that is such a, an inspiring story, and um, I, I'm so happy to be able to uh, share that with you today, Kathy. I really appreciate your time, and i so uh, impressed and taken by your courage. And I, you know, I, uh, congratulations on the book. I hope it does well, and um, thank you again for spending your time with me today. No, thank you, Nicole. It's been lovely. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And Too Much Stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest. Mm -hmm.